This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The concerns about what happened on Saturday night in Lock Street continue. Uh, we now know that uh, police have said there is a connection between the anarchist book fair that was uh, being held at Westdale Collegiate right across the road from us here at CHML at the radio center on Saturday and Sunday and uh, what happened on Saturday night at Lock Street. They have not divulged what that information is that makes that connection, but I'm assuming that will be forthcoming sooner than later, we certainly hope. But it does also raise some questions about why they were there in the first place. And I know a number of you have uh, contacted us over the last couple of days and say, what's going on here with the board? Why would they even allow something like that to go on in one of their facilities? What are the board policies? Well, let's uh, bring Todd White into that conversation. He, of course, is the uh, chair of the the board for the uh, Hamilton Board of Education and also the trustee for Ward 5 and uh, joining us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this. Todd, thanks so much for jumping in here. appreciate the time today. Yeah, of course, Bill. Good morning. Let me, I, I got, I'll ask you the question everybody's asking me right now. Why were those guys there in the first place? So, in a nutshell, um, and a lot of people don't know this, uh, they've actually been holding that annual book fair for a good portion of the past decade. Uh, so it has been a long-standing event at uh, Westdale, and they've been long-time renters, uh, not always under uh, one particular name. So this was rented under uh, the Steel City um, Book Fair, uh, and that was the rental. And what we do uh, when it comes to rentals is we, we screen each uh, renter. Uh, this in this in this case, it was fair market value. Of course, we paid for the, the space, and uh, the description that we received. Um, was that of uh, social justice uh, themes, uh, environmental themes, feminism, uh, anti-racism initiatives, items like that. So it checked out on paper. Uh, there has been no issues in the past, so the event went ahead. When you when you say this was vetted, uh, did somebody just read the application, or did you actually research to see who these people are? Yeah, and we don't have the, the operational resources to go in-depth to every organization. Um, so essentially, we look at the organization that's applied, uh, and we read a little bit about them as well as the event description and what we plan to use it for. And as long as that jives with uh, our general code of conduct, um, they are granted the permit. Now, you mentioned uh, there is a fee that, uh, that the board asks for in a situation like this. Is it a standard fee, no matter who it is that's booking the place? Yeah, and it's similar. We've had these discussions in the past about how, um, as a board, uh, we rent our facilities. We try to uh, recoup costs for those spaces that are would otherwise be sitting empty. Uh, so this would be a fair market value rental. So very similar if you were to hold even a private uh, special event at our school. Uh, it could be your birthday party, for instance. Uh, you would pay that market rent. Uh, we would grant you the permit application. You'd be responsible with your own insurance, with uh, taking care of whatever arrangements are are, are involved. Um, but essentially, this would be a private rental agreement uh, for a third party, not sponsored by the board, not subsidized, uh, and in fact, actually makes a profit for the board. Are there staffing implications here? I mean, if they're they're in the facility itself, I would imagine you have to have somebody there. Yeah, so on a weekend, which is what this was, uh, we would have caretaking on staff as well. So they get uh, passed on, or that cost gets passed on to them. So uh, they paid a roughly a $1,000 caretaking fee to have one person on site to operate that facility. Okay. And you mentioned that this group, although I'm a little cloudy on this, you're saying that they've sort of been around for the last nine or ten years, but they have used different names, or is it the same group all the time? Well, so so some have referred to the event as the uh, anar- uh, anarchist uh, book fair. The, what we received was the Seal City uh, book fair. 
Um, others have the tower as the organizer. Uh, on paper, uh, what we received was this was a project of uh, OPRIG, OPIRG Toronto, which is a long-standing social justice environmental uh, initiative group. Uh, so there's been a number of kind of different names floated around in terms of who booked the event, uh, who ran the event, what was the name of the event. Uh, so those are just some of those details. And you're correct, it is it is cloudy uh, on the surface, though we read the description. And like I said, all of the themes lined up with uh, uh, our code of conduct in terms of promoting uh, the social justice, environmental, et cetera, initiatives. But was there a face to this or is it just an application? <laughs> So it would be the application. Uh, there would be contact people listed on that application. Um, in this case, um, OPRIG in Toronto uh, have said that they booked the facility um, for this group. Uh, so that's basically the information that we have uh, at this point and everything else checked out. Um, but once again, as we dig deeper, and of course, as the police are looking into this, uh, more information seems to be coming forward. And of course, the biggest news that we received was uh, yesterday when the police announced that they are investigating uh, and have reason to believe there is a connection between the book fair and the events uh, on Lock Street. To that point, Todd, have police actually talked to you? Yes, yes. So we met with them uh, midday on Monday. Uh, they came down to the school. Um, they were certainly asking questions. Uh, the uh, asked to view the video surveillance that we have uh, in the high school. Uh, yesterday, they sat down with us. They viewed it uh, and have requested some of that video evidence. Uh, so they're very much involved. Uh, and uh, from what we hear as well, they were down there on Sunday uh, at the event, uh, not formally uh, in connection with us, but we were told after the fact that they did have officers uh, there on Sunday. Yeah, I talked to Joe Warmington for the Toronto Sun, who was also at the uh, the fair on Sunday. And uh, uh, Joe's words, and I'm paraphrasing this, was there's very little about books and, and things. I, there seemed to be an awful lot more about anarchy and how to do this and kind of a how-to and videos and things of this nature. And not at all the character of what he expected when he heard the, the advertisements for this. With that in mind and with the information that you've got from police, is that this caused you to reconsider your evaluation process? Oh, I mean, not in terms of the process. I mean, we can only... Um, do so much to research an organization. Uh, in this case, we did vet it. Um, it had been around for, like I said, a good portion of the past decade with no complaints. Uh, so I think the process works, but what doesn't work is uh, a misleading application that doesn't clearly identify the description of the event. So if there are workshops being held at the event, vendors coming in, uh, and the content isn't what you described to us, and that's brought to our attention, which unfortunately we don't know until after it happens, um, we would no longer rent with someone like that. So this organization, uh, and as this unfolds, uh, if that connection or when that connection is made, uh, we'd have no interest and in, in clearly not uh, rent with this group in the future. I mean, I mean, listen, I understand that you can't be the, everywhere at once and, and totally vet everything. I mean, uh, we had this discussion a few years ago with Lauren Lieberman, Festival of Friends, and, you know, when they were having the festival up at Ancaster, and it was discovered, uh, I guess, at day one that there were some vendors there that were actually selling knives and, and weaponry, et cetera. Well, well, of course, he didn't know that, and as soon as he found out, he shut them down. And, and I expect the same sort of thing from you. But obviously, this, I guess, is a, 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 a an educational experience for all of us right now to say maybe there's a better way to do this. Yeah, and that's it. And, and that's where we could look at further descriptions from groups. We could um, perhaps ask some more questions in terms of uh, what the event in, entails. But it really it does come down to that group providing us the correct information. And in those contracts, uh, they agree that they abide by all of the rules, they meet our code of conduct. 
So contractually, these groups do, do say to us that uh, they are following the rules, and there is some level of uh, uh, faith involved in that. But uh, when we receive complaints and if these events go sideways, we'd have no hesitation to pull the plug. And I think in this case, if there was some of that information uh, that came to our attention earlier, we very well could have. And one in particular was we have a video promoting the event, which we didn't see in advance. Um, but the video, as described and some have seen, I'm sure, uh, had very little to do with books and a lot to do with uh, somewhat of a writing video uh, and uh, various other scenes of violence. So those are the concerns that we would have acted on, but unfortunately came to our attention after the fact. Todd, lots more of this to come, I'm sure. Uh, we do appreciate the clarification on this, though. Thanks for this. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a lot, Bill. Todd White, uh, Chairman of the Board for the Hamilton Board of Education. Uh, that gives you some indication as to how they got into Westdale Collegiate in the first place. How do police handle situations like this? Uh, not just after the fact. I mean, what happened on the street is certainly problematic and needs to be addressed. But police are aware that groups like this exist uh, and, and obviously have to keep track of those. I want to bring Ross McLean into the conversation, crime specialist and security expert. He's a former Toronto police officer. His uh, webpage, RossMcLeanSecurity.com, always with some great links about very timely information like what happened here. Ross, thanks so much for taking some time for us today. Appreciate you having on the show. Yeah, good to be with you, Bill. And I, I appreciate listening to your last guest there. One thing I particularly like is he claimed that these people said that they've got insurance. So maybe those uh, some of those store owners can go after this group if they end up being connected. Oh, I'm sure that conversation's going on right now, don't you? <laughs> I hope so. I, yeah, I do too. For the sake of the merchants that that were adversely affected by this, Ross, let me let me ask you: How do police handle uh, keeping track of what's going on? And and I, I know that I'm also going to get pushback from groups that are sympathetic to to the anarchists and say, "Well, there's Big Brother." But at the same time, you you I, I think there's a responsibility for police to to say, "Look, at we know these groups are out there. We know what they're capable of. We just saw it here on Saturday. You've certainly seen it in Toronto over the years." How, how do police handle that? What is there? Is there a, a department? Are there people that are dedicated to looking after this? Uh, yes, yes, there is. But it's an evolving it's an evolving case for police. I mean, I've dealt with uh, the police protecting events here in Toronto recently, dealing with uh, threats of these anarchists and the antifa and these sort of things coming forward. And the police, for the most part, they will tell you that when it comes to any group wanting to hold a meeting or do something, so long as they're not breaking the law, the police aren't going to intervene and they can't be seen to be taking a side one way or the other. So in terms of general policing, if someone says they're going to be holding an event that, that may be controversial, so long as it's not against the law, the police will treat it uh, the same, no matter who's holding the event. That being said, though, every police department has an intelligence uh, Bureau that will be working to help track uh, stories like this, uh, cases like this, and they'll be looking to see if an event like this is going to be coming up. They may or may not have gotten a warning saying, hey, look it, we know that some people are traveling from uh, these cities to your place for this event. They've caused trouble in the past. Uh, we don't know if they had that heads up or not, because uh, this was a fairly small uh, blister, this little group here. But uh, that's in part how they handle it, Bill, with intelligence. Well, and we don't know all the facts on that, and hopefully that's part of the investigation. I'm sure that it is. But I know that uh, the other day when I had Joe Warmington on the show, and, and, and Joe, of course, was in town on Sunday the day after and went over to Westdale and, uh, and actually went over to Tower, the Tower, which is uh, one of the organizations that is said to be maybe linked with this. 
And uh, and he said, you know, he saw a bunch of people that, hopping into a car with Quebec license plates and taking off from that building. So uh, obviously there were some out-of-towners in situations like this. Uh, are there informants, though? Did, did the police try to find people that can give them uh, snippets of information about what may or may not be going on? They will be doing that. They will look at informants. Uh, you know, the question is, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing this Antifa and these anarchists, and they're all the same. They're all the same uh, bowl of soup, this, these groups. They are starting to evolve and becoming more and more organized, more and more menacing, more and more dangerous, uh, you know, with their tactics, from assaulting people to carrying weapons to Molotov cocktails to spraying noxious substances all sorts of uh, things are getting involved with these groups. And, you know, I went down to a couple of their protests that went on in Toronto City Hall. And I think the police are going to have to talk with their city councils and get a much more aggressive stance about people who show up at protests, or as sometimes they're called in the media, which drives me crazy, counter-protests, even though clearly they're wearing masks, they're carrying poles, they're out to intimidate. They're hardly counter-protesters. They're, mm. they're, this, they're this side of... Uh, would-be uh, rioters in an unlawful assembly. And I'd like to think that the police are going to have to start taking a more aggressive stance. If somebody shows up with a mask on, carrying uh, something that looks like a weapon, doing something, that they'll declare them unlawful assemblies much earlier. And if they don't disperse, arrest them. Because people can get seriously hurt. And we're lucky that no one got seriously hurt in this little bit here. Had we had one of those stores run out in front of their store and put their hands up and say, don't break my windows, and got hit in the head with a rock as someone fired it at the window, you know, serious things can happen here. Well, and that's, I know, one of the areas of concern. And, and Chief uh, Gert's going to be on our program tomorrow for an hour, and I'm sure we'll get into this in greater detail. Uh, about methodology, and, and we've talked with uh, others uh, in law enforcement, but uh, and, and it was interesting to put this in context because of some of the things that have happened in Toronto in the last couple of years, Ross, and, and one of them obviously being G20, uh, and we saw what happened there, and police were vilified, and I think with some justification about how they handled that particular situation, but what it's caused, I think part of the, 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 the followed from that is is police will stand back, and I'm not saying they don't want to get involved, but they there's there's a I guess a trigger that they're looking for. There were police on the scene here, yet the violence still happened, and 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 the destruction still happened uh, before police could actually move in there to do something about it. And I guess that's the the big question at this stage. At what point do police move in and try to confront these types of things? Well, th this is the big question, and I'm going to go to the macro scale on sure, this, as opposed yeah. to the micro dealing just with Hamilton, because I'm sure the chief, I'm sure the chief wants to look out for the people of Hamilton. That's for sure. But yeah. on the macro side, what we've seen when you follow this from the states to where it's come to up into Canada, when you see these uh, protests, you'll you'll see that there's political involvement that get, and interferes with the police and the police uh, going after these people. The you know the the riots that were on Berkeley that was. That was a private university police that were dealing with that, who went, stood down while people were getting beaten and things were getting set on fire. You know, and funny enough there, the person who was in charge of security at Berkeley was the former director of Homeland Security. So they know some of these places, they know exactly what they're doing when they issue stand down to their forces, if there's that level of political influence. You know, and that interferes with chiefs being chiefs and looking after their community. And even right now, today, some of that discussion is going on about the bill that the Liberals are bringing in for the Safer Communities Act uh, bill, which gets involved with allowing, I believe, a lot more political interference in how police conduct and 
and protect areas. So it's an issue that if, if there's stand-down orders, it's important to find out where they come from and what the interference is, and if it's meeting what the community wants. And everybody wants the community to be safe, you would think. You'd think. but And, and herein lies the, the situation. I had that conversation with Joe Warmington. It's, it's not against the law to be an anarchist in this country. It's not against the law to, 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 to march. It's not even against the law to pick up a rock. But, boy, that millisecond between the time that rock's in your hand and you decide to throw it through somebody's window, you become not a protester. You're a criminal. And, and, and therein lies the problem. And I think we need some stronger lines of, of delineation there. A lot more to come up on this. Uh, Ross, thank you so much for taking some time for us today. I always appreciate it. That's great, Bill. Thank you. Ross McLean, crime specialist and security expert. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, Chief of Police Eric Gert will be on the program tomorrow on the Bill Kelly Show, and I'm certain that uh, you'll have some questions for Chief Gert about this and some of the other things that have gone on around town over the last couple of days. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. City Council is trying to do something about uh, the offloading problem we have now with uh, paramedics and uh, ambulances. Uh, As I mentioned earlier in the program, you can't drive past a hospital here in the city without seeing at least two, usually more, ambulances, and they're waiting to offload patients. I, I think we've Spent a lot of time over the last number of years describing what the problem is. Well, City Council has now decided to boost emergency services to try to stop this offloading problem. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Mario Posturero, the president of Opsu Local 256. Uh, and uh, first of all, Mario, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us here today. Glad to be on, Bill. Thank you. Well, you and I have been talking with this for a long, long time right now. And uh, I, I, it seems as if City Council starting to get the message. And, and I know that the last couple of times you've talked to us, you've said that you've been working with Michael Sanderson, who, of course, is the uh, the chief for for the city's emergency medical services for the city, uh, and he was trying to convince council to uh, to spend some more money on this. Maybe give us a quick status update on where you are and what this new initiative might be able to do. Well, first of all, we're, we're appreciative that council recognized uh, the need for additional uh, frontline ambulance service hours, uh, street hours. You've only been um, saying that for about six years, but I'm gl- I guess it's finally resonating now. That's good. Well, it, it, hopefully it's finally resonating, and hopefully this is the start. And just to be clear, the additional funding for this ambulance, uh, um, this ambulance has already been in place through a, a slightly different funding scheme and was set to expire on March 31st. So council approval will permit this ambulance to be part of our ongoing complement and definitely will not fix the offload problem, but will help with the increasing demands for our service. As we've said in the past, we've got two issues that we're dealing with. We're dealing with an increase uh, in demand for medical assistance, and that's been to the tune of 5% over the last seven years which equates to a 35% increase in demands for our service. And then, of course, we've got uh, that very pestering problem of uh, hospital offload delays. So, um, and Mayor Eisenberg, a credit to him, uh, during the discussions at the GIC on Friday, he said, this additional ambulances will not have any serious impact on offload delays, but it will help, will help with the increasing call volume. And obviously increasing call volume for uh, reasons that we've cited in the past, and demographics point to uh, elderly people relying on our service more and more. Um, projected call volume over the next number of years is set to increase by approximately 22,000 calls. This will help. So it's not the answer, but it's definitely going to help, and we are appreciative of Council's approval of the funding bill. 
Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about the numbers. And I, I know that we can get into statistics here, and, and that can kind of make people's eyes glaze over, like, oh, my God, I don't know. The, so I'll try not to get too deeply into this, but there are some pretty relevant numbers here. I know that uh, that Mr. Sanderson said that uh, they have goals, and that's that's laudable because you have to have goals to, to try to improve situations right now. Uh, they want to establish a goal of 90% of patients being offloaded to emergency within 60 minutes and 100% within two hours, uh, which is very, uh, you know, that's that's a very aggressive goal. But what struck me here, Mario, with the numbers that exist right now, and this is this is kind of frightening. There's a provincial standard that's been set here uh, that they'd like to see. Uh, the province recommends 90% of patients should be offloaded within 30 minutes. Within 30 minutes. Now, right now, as it stands, for Hamilton General, it's 107 minutes. For uh, the Jervinsky up on the mountain, it's 112, and it's 91 for St. Joe's. We're not even close to the provincial standard here. We are not, and I mean it's it's laudable that the provincial government sets these standards, but yet doesn't assist the service with meeting those standards. Doesn't assist the hospitals with additional staffing uh, to deal with the increasing uh, demands for their service, uh, to deal with long-term care deficiencies. So you know, having a, a standard that's unrealistic and then not helping pay to achieve it is really disingenuous at, at, at a minimum, at its core, quite honestly. So, um, yeah, we've set some certain benchmarks in order to clear our ambulances out of the hospital, but we're going to be challenged to meet them unless there's funding at the provincial level to provide additional staffing to support additional beds. Well, and that's the, that's the problem. Yeah, basically, they've said there are the standards. Now, off you go. Go and meet those. Well, uh, exactly. And, and it's, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. So, yeah, you have this, this benchmark, but... You don't even come close to assisting the hospitals and the ambulance service to meet it. So it's lip service, Bill. And listen, and I'm glad the city council spent the money on this, and it's good to see, and I'm glad that, that you're getting support from staff on this, from uh, from Mr. Sanderson and others on staff, about what needs to be done. But but you know the reality on this, Mario. I mean, you guys are living this on a daily basis. And they can set all the standards they want, and they can say that we want to see 90% of these uh, ambulances that arrive uh, discharged within 30 minutes. But if there's no room in the hospital, it's still not going to happen, and they have not addressed that problem yet. Nor have they addressed the fact that the city of Hamilton in some ways is disadvantaged because we have an elderly population that's above average. Those 65 years and above, uh, there's a higher uh, constituency of that segment of the population that lives in Hamilton. Those that are 65 years of age and older are five times more likely to use EMS services. So you've got to grapple with that reality. We've got some uh, unique uh, considerations that are not being supported by the provincial government. Our, our, our municipality and our local taxpayer is having to burden the lack of funding that's being that's not being provided by the provincial government. So we've got two issues here, and we're grappling with both of them. We've got an os- a hospital offload issue, and we've got a significantly increasing demand for ambulance service. And we don't have sufficient ambulances to cover off those calls, Bill. And even if they do, let's let's you know take the city council money for a second here, which they they expect is is going to be able to hire seven more paramedics and maybe purchase another ambulance. So you're going to have another unit. You're hopefully going to have more staff for this, Mario. But unless the other problems are addressed, I can tell you right now, 
in about six months, you and I are going to be having the same conversation, and we're going to be saying, yeah, they hired the seven new, but you know what? They're sitting there in emergency now, too, doing what everyone else did, because there's still no room upstairs to take people off. And and therein lies the problem. Uh, you bang on, and I'll also emphasize the fact that that additional funding for additional ambulance, we already have that ambulance on the road, though. There you go. January and February were dismal code zero months. Oh, yeah, we know those call numbers. Volume, call volume continues to increase. So we've got, and there's two separate streams here. We truly have to fund the ambulance service properly to deal with the increasing demand. You know, and our local taxpayers, they get a great value for money. And we occupy a very thin slice of the budget pie, though, as I've stated in the past, compared to police and fire. And on average, the average residential taxpayer approximately $600 goes to police services, approximately $350 goes to fire, and approximately $80 goes to EMS. So that just reinforces my point there that we don't have sufficient frontline ambulances to deal with the increasing demand. Even if we did, we would now be challenged with the offload issue within the hospitals. But council can only um, take care of certain things that it's responsible for. It can only deal with properly funding the ambulance service and put pressure on the provincial government to assist both with funding the ambulance service and with providing adequate funding to the hospitals so they can serve some of these patients out of the hospital that don't belong there, though. And I know that it's great to do a photo op in front of the hospital and say, yeah, we're going to throw more money at this, or we're going to hire an extra-duty nurse in, in OR, or ER, rather, and that, that's, that's all well and good. But the fact is that they need no more long-term care facilities, they need more hospice care, because there are a percentage of people, and I've heard all sorts of estimates about this, Mario, that don't belong in the hospital. They should be someplace else, maybe even at home, but we don't have a, we don't have a substantial home care either. So all these other elements need to be addressed. Uh, and, and it goes back to the point we've been talking about for many, many years here. We don't need to spend more money on health care in this province. We need to spend the money that we're using better, and we're not doing a very good job of that. And you guys, you guys are the ones that are taking the heat for this because you're the ones that are in the intake system, and you're saying, "What am I supposed to do here?" Well, you, you're right about you know some of the previous band-aids that have been applied are uh, in offloads, you know, offload supervisors. You know, fundamentally, they have not provided the relief to any any measurable effect that we've reduced our code zero events and we've pr- improved response times for those patients that rely on us. And I, I focus on the elderly. Um, they rely on our service to the tune of five times more often than the average resident. So, I mean, it's, it's the photo ops aside, we need to fundamentally address the underlying issues. We have a unique demographic in the city of Hamilton. It's uh, projected to increase. That's the demographic of our beautiful city, Bill, but we've got to also be able to fund it properly. You know, the province, the city and local hospitals need to regain that sense of urgency that grew out of the very first, much publicized, I'll say, Code Zero event in 2006. Staff up or deal with the consequences, because there is a crisis looming. Well, I, I would submit that we're already there, Mario. I mean, given the fact that there was such a, a big fuss about that first Code Zero, oh my God, look at that, there could be no hosp- ambulances available. It's the new normal now. It's, yeah, it's, it's become it's, a dead entry point. It's become a dead entry point. We're, yeah, it's 65 this week or this month, and, uh, you know, we're doing this, and it's 75 the next month. It's almost become a tick off on a box, but nobody's really dealing with the fundamental core issues. Call volume is increasing in the city of Hamilton. 
There is increasing demands for our service. That's because of demographics. That's because of socioeconomic factors. And the hospital sector is not adequately staffed, not adequately funded to deal with that inflow of patients. Patients get stuck in the wards. They get stuck in the ER. And our paramedics get stuck having to uh, care for patients on, on ambulance stretchers while calls continue to increase on the street, though, and we don't have the amateurs to respond. I, I'm, I'm flabbergasted sometimes by the way that we've, we've tried to rationalize this. And, and, and I remember doing a program with that first Code Zero, and you, you were on that segment, Mario, and we talked about you know how traumatic that was and how catastrophic it could be in a circumstance like that. And now we're looking at the numbers, and you guys see them on a regular basis, on a monthly basis, and, and you say, oh, yeah, there was only 65 this month, and uh, thank God nobody died. Uh, we just seem to, to normalize this right now. And, and it's it's the wrong way to go. We should be trying to go the other way. We should be going backwards on this. And and the Ministry of Health has got to kick in here. I mean, that's all there is to it. And I know there's another battle here, and I know that I'm going to hear from counselors that say, by the way, the, the province has more of a responsibility. And they, I think they do. Uh, I know they have kicked in money for ambulance service in the past, but they should be doing more, not just for Hamilton, but for other communities. Uh, that I know they've got programs where they share in the cost, and uh, they're going to be looking for money from the province uh, for this unit. But, but your point is well taken. Uh, you know, the, the city councilors can pat themselves on the back and say, hey, there we go, we've allocated money for an extra ambulance. They're playing catch-up. I mean, you guys have already got that on the road, and it hasn't really made the situation much better. No, we, we are playing catch-up. And like, like I said, you know, I never look a, a gift horse in the mouth, and we're very grateful for council providing the additional funding. But if we're serious about addressing the problem, we need a 10 ambulance four years ago when Chief Sanderson first uh, took over our service as the chief. We have not gotten that. We were five and a half to six. And in the, in the four years since he's been here, our call volume has increased exponentially. So, and he has brought this information to city council. I've been there. They have been aware of it. You know, whether it's falling on deaf ears or whether they're just trying to balance out whether the province is going to come in and fix some of the other problems, I'm not really sure. But we've got to properly fund our ambulance service. Council is directly responsible for this. And, you know, the, the Ontario Municipal Benchmark initiatives, initiatives, you know, it, it calls it straight. You know, we have less paramedics per thousand residents. We do more calls per thousand residents. You know, we've got less than other comparable municipalities. Our taxpayers presently achieve great value for money. I've given you an insight into what the operating budget is of the three emergency services. You know, you can do anything you want, but you've got to put more dollars towards the fact that people want more service. People are calling us more often. We have elderly who are relying on our services five times more often than anybody else. Just no. as you and I are having this discussion, I just uh, on Twitter just got another stat that was released uh, from the ministry. 52% increase in uh, opioid deaths uh, if from uh, 216 over to 217. Uh, that impacts ambulance service because you're going to get those 911 calls. I mean, these these are the sorts of pressures that, that you guys face on a daily basis. And, and sadly, we only get this information maybe once a year about some of these statistics. But somebody needs to connect the dots and say, no wonder, no wonder these guys are overtaxed. No wonder they're calling in sick. No wonder they're getting ill. No wonder there aren't enough units. I mean, you're getting more and more pressure on, on uh, your job to deliver that service. Absolutely, and you know our paramedics want to deliver the service. Our service is doing the best it can. We've implemented a number of different programs, community paramedics, in order to deal with frequent callers to try to divert them to 
uh, other areas where um, they can seek assistance. But the fundamental fact is, though, all of these small initiatives are not enough to deal with the overwhelming um, demand for an increase in our service. And when it's being met with a lack of hospital beds, we've got a major problem. Yeah, we're in a crisis, but it's going to get worse. But I don't think we're quite there yet to the two more people are going to step back and say, why didn't we do something about this before? And the mayor a few few weeks back obviously had a personal experience and yeah. it resonated with him. I'm glad it did. And I'll give him credit. Uh, at committee meeting, he said, this additional ambulance will not fix the outflow delays. This will help with the increase in call volume. So if other counselors have to have this personal experience before they recognize we have to reprioritize where we want our ambulance service to be, then they have to come out and into the hospitals and see for themselves, Bill. Well, and and I've suggested in the past that if city councillors want to get an idea about this, instead of just looking at a, a page with statistics, and I'm not even sure they all do that, uh, go to an emergency room. Uh, and I used to be able, I used to say on a Saturday night or something, go anytime now, just anytime. Uh, because sure. I can tell you, every time I go over to my wife's office downtown, I pass by St. Joe's, yeah. I always see two or three units there, Mario. Go by the general, you see the same thing. They're all there, and that's where the roadblock is. That's where that's where the, 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 the stoppage is. That's where the system starts to fall apart. And it's not because they're not doing a great job inside that facility. It's not because you guys aren't doing a great job on the road, but there's a roadblock right there at the ER, and somebody's got to address it. Yeah, there's got to be a sense of urgency, Bill. And, you know, whatever we can lever in order to attain uh, additional dollars from the provincial government to deal with the hospital sector, we need to do that. And I think attempts have been made. Um, I don't know how much leverage we have in convincing them that, you know, we are a special and unique uh, city with respect to our aging population and the fact that the closure of McMaster, you remember that one, Bill, a few years back? Those beds were supposed to be auto-transferred to the other hospitals. Guess what? It didn't happen, Bill. So we've got one less hospital that's open to adult patients, and we've got increasing call volume, and we've got reduced funding to the hospitals to deal with these patients. It's... It's a perfect storm, Bill, and this crisis will worsen. Mario Pastorero, uh, hopefully people are listening to what you're saying. Always a pleasure, Mario. We'll stay in touch. Thank you uh, so much for the time today, though. Greatly appreciated. My pleasure, Bill. Have a great day. You too. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, of major importance to all of us, uh, of course, is what's going to be happening from the White House and Donald Trump's threat, and I guess that's maybe the best way to characterize this, to impose tariffs on uh, imported steel and aluminum, which is going to have a huge impact on Canada if it were to come to pass. Uh, We've talked to a number of different economists and political scientists over the last couple of days. There's a certain sense of inevitability, though, that that, that this is going to happen. I mean, I know that that they're hoping that there's going to be an exemption, but uh, that's not the way Trump seems to be talking these days. John Iverson, uh, National Affairs columnist with the uh, National Post, writes about this piece today. Surgical retaliatory strikes may be the best way to show Trump their trade wars have a price. And John Iverson joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this morning. John, how are you doing today? Hey, Bill, how are you? Good. Listen, when uh, the president's old uh, chief economist and advisor bails on him and says, I'm out of here, uh, that pretty much tells you that uh, Trump's not going to move on this. Yeah, it doesn't look like he's bluffing. I mean, I think we all expected that, uh, you know, at the 11th hour, this is the, the, the art of the deal. You you make these outrageous demands and then people cave in and you get what you want. Um, but I don't think he's bluffing here. I mean, it does look like uh, that these tariffs are coming. And, uh, you know, I mean, we can, we can uh, 
fingers crossed, hope that we can we can get exempt. Um, we can even make concessions at the table at NAFTA, which is one of the things he said would would um, would perhaps forestall these these tariffs. But at the end of the day, it looks like they're coming, in and, and therefore I think there has to be a, a plan B for, from the Canadian government. There's a, there's a couple of realities here, because I know that uh, we've talked about this, John, and you touch on it in the piece today. He, he's getting a lot of pushback on, on his own turf about this, even from Republicans that are saying, this is wrong, you can't do this, and it's going to have serious implications uh, vis-a-vis unemployment, higher prices for consumers, etc. But notwithstanding all of that, this does play to his base, and that really seems to be the, the major motivation for Trump. Yeah, now, so so the, the, the received wisdom, I think, in, in the Canadian government is that we will do a tit-for-tat, we will do a blanket um, steel tariff that will be aimed at the steel companies who are proposing this uh, tariff to Trump. Um, but I think I've talked to people who are suggesting a more surgical approach than that, a little bit more subtle and that's looking at the politics that are at play here. Uh, I mean, for example, there's a special election, like a by-election in Pennsylvania's 18th Congressional District that's south and east of Pittsburgh. This is real core uh, Trump territory. He won uh, 58% of the vote there in 2016. And this, so this race is now neck and neck with the Republican and the, and the Democrat. And yet, you know, so Trump's come out with this. I'm sure it's playing well in, in, in that district where there are a lot of uh, metal companies, even despite the fact that Pittsburgh's no longer the steel town it once was. There's still a lot of uh, people employed in the, in, the, in the steel industry, aluminum industry, stainless steel alloy products. Um, and this is playing well there. So, you know, this helps his domestic political agenda. You know, they, they, this is we're approaching the midterms. They do not want um, the, the Democrats to gain momentum uh, going into the midterms and take back control of the House of Representatives. So, you know, it, it's all politics to Trump. Yet, so I think when the Canadian government looks at this, it's going to think, well, where are we going to target? And somewhere, and 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 this district and Pennsylvania in general, uh, you know, there are a lot of companies like uh, Heinz and Hershey's and Mars and Cargill that are producing food products, they all come in duty-free, but they don't need to come in duty-free. We could put tariffs on those products because we can get them from, from elsewhere. I mean, I, I use the example of appliances. If we remove the duty-free uh, tariff on, um, on appliances like fridges and washing machines, um, we could still get them from South Korea. We could still get them from, from the EU where we have deals duty-free. So you're, you're actually penalizing where you want to penalize, but you're not driving up the price for consumers. And this is actually being discussed in government, and I think this is the way that the Canadian government may go at the end. And, and there's, there's some political rationale to that, and, and it makes all kinds of sense, because you're absolutely right. I mean, I've been following the the electoral process and what's going on down in Pennsylvania with that, that big election that's going on down there. Even the Democrats are supportive of, of protectionism down there because of the way that they've been decimated. So they, they love the Trump rhetoric, even if they don't like Trump. So it's going to be pretty hard to do that. And and they, I'm sure, John, that they fought, probably buy into this idea that, yeah, we can win trade wars and this isn't going to have any impact. It's going to ma- actually make things better for us. But if you target those areas and say, no, you do have to pay a price for that, you, you got to wonder how long that support for Trump's going to be there. Right. I mean, the, you know, Pennsylvania, let's talk Pennsylvania, but equally true for Ohio, for, yeah. for uh, a number of these other states. You know, there are... We're the number one trading partner. There, there are nearly twenty thousand jobs in Pennsylvania in that in that uh, one congressional district that are linked to trade and investment with Canada. 
you know, nearly a billion dollars of annual goods exported from that district into Canada. You know, we are not powerless in this in this uh, fight. I mean, we, I don't think we saw, uh, we didn't seek it. Um, I think also the way it's been uh, couched by the president is, is adds insult to injury. That this is a national security issue. Uh, you know, Canada, Canadian troops have fought uh, alongside Americans from Flanders to Kandahar, and then to deem Canada a, a national security threat. I think is particularly galling. But even when you remove the emotion from it, it is um, political suicide to, for Trump to do this, yet he seems to be uh, going headlong into uh, launching trade wars that are going to hurt America long term. And, and, and what hurt America generally hurts Canada too. So I think the, the Canadian strategy has to be, what can we do that is uh, least hurtful to ourselves? This, let's talk about that, that that characterization of national security. Now, my understanding, I'm hardly a constitutional expert on this stuff, but my understanding is that is that, that is the only tool that the president, any president, actually has to actually impose a tariff. This is really the job of the Congress, but the president can say this is a national security issue, so I can override that. And, and apparently there's some, some, some writing there that allows him to do that. So if that argument blows up, then he has no right, nor does he have any, any ability to be able to do this. So he's going to hang his hat on that. I guess the bigger question here is the Congress going to call him on it? Well, apparently this this is within the, the executive power. And yeah. Nixon used it on oil. Um, I think George uh, George Bush Senior also used it. So, so it's for the same reason. But but they were both at war at the time. And with, with Nixon, it was of course the crisis where they're closing gas stations, right. and they said hey, you know this is a this is a national emergency. And and Trump, of course, it was. Well, I mean, with Bush, I mean, we all know what was going on in the Middle East at that time. But is there really a rationale for Trump to be able to weigh in on that on an issue like this? Well, you know, he, on the one hand, he said this is a national security concern. On the next, he says, well, if we get concessions on NAFTA, it'll go away. So, you know, either there's a national security concern or there's not. Um, the fact, the suggestion that he's using here is that national security can be used as a bargaining chip. I mean, that, that essentially rips up the rule book that's regulated the global economy since the Second World War. Yeah. I mean, you you know, there is a, there are global trade rules, and and um, and if he's going to invoke national security on on spurious grounds, then what's to stop any other country from from doing the same thing? And eventually, uh, you know, you just end up with protective walls all around the world, and that's as we know, that's what led to the Great Depression in the 30s. So uh, it's um, you know, you you advocate this stuff, uh, you don't do it lightly. But I think in th- in this case. Um, the Canadian government's got to really seriously consider whether it can allow what Trump is proposing to go unchallenged. You scratched below the surface on the piece today, John, and I'm glad you brought this up about the the, the, the NAFTA negotiation and that tie-in. And Trump's talked about that, obviously, saying, hey, if you cut us a better deal well, with NAFTA, then we can forget about this tariff thing for the time being anyway. But but you hit on something which I think is, is probably one of the major stumbling blocks in trying to reach any sort of an after deal, and that's supply management. I mean, we've heard that they have made huge strides on on on, on different uh, you know things to do with uh, social media and 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 you know maybe even allowing Verizon in here now. So that stuff maybe seems to be on the road, but supply management is a stumbling block. Uh, is 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 Trump really using this as a bargaining chip to try to get the the, the Canadian contingent to back off on supply management? Well, he actually mentioned uh, agriculture in one of his tweets. Yeah, uh, I, I remember that, yeah. So, 
So yeah, I think it's it's part of the, the what he's looking for. I mean, no Canadian government is going to do it unilaterally. Um, apparently, I mean, even Harper's government didn't. So um, you know, I think that that's a he does have a legitimate grievance there. There is a, there is protectionism on the Canadian side, um, and it may be that that we make concessions there. I don't suspect that it's going to get uh, dismantled entirely. But he may, but the Canadian government may, in the end, offer greater access as we did. Uh, and they deal with Europe. Um, but, you know, that's not the only stumbling block. There are others uh, when it comes to the rules of origin on, on autos. The Americans want a specifically North, uh, a specifically American U.S. content of more than half, uh, whereas Canada's arguing about uh, North American content can be up to 75%. I mean, the, the point being, you can't just specify one partner when you've got a free trade zone of three countries. Um, there are other problems too. The investor-state relations dispute uh, mechanism is still, um, there are still real problems there. But yeah, I think that um, supply management is something that Trump is going after. And, and, and if we were to make major concessions, there is a possibility that we would be exempt these steel tariffs. What, what about doing an end run around some of this stuff? I mean, uh, I, I'm sure you've seen the numbers, John. I mean, our, our Chamber of Commerce here, Hamilton, has said that, look, at if this thing goes through, that there's a possibility of 10,000 jobs being uh, negatively impacted. It could be 40,000 when you look at some of the spinoff industries around here, like auto supplies and, and parts and things of this nature. That's a worst-case scenario, but, I mean, it's it's something that's on the table right now. But there's speculation here that, well, for instance, ArcelorMittal DeFasco here in, in, in Hamilton, th- there are U.S. plants with ArcelorMittal down in the States, and they could simply ship the stuff down there, have it stamped there, and all of a sudden it's a U.S. product. <laughs> uh, are, is, is there some flexibility here for, for some of the US, Canadian steel plants to try to find a plan B? To be honest, I'm not close enough to be able to say that. I mean, I, I can imagine that that, uh, th- that is a possibility. I mean, I think that there's, there's, there's U.S. ownership of steel plants in Canada, Um there may be maybe ways around it, but I, to be frank, I'm not really close enough to know that. Yeah, and, and obviously it would only be a temporary solution even if they were to do that. And and I, I'm sure if somebody saw that loophole, all of a sudden they'd do something to try to close this up. But do we, Do we? I guess the, the the question that, and you address it in your piece today, John, do we go to war with these guys? I mean, there's still, I guess, some discussion going on about an exemption, but I, I kind of get the feeling now that this, it's really kind of a waste of time that Trump's made up his mind about this. Yeah, I mean, I think that... Uh he had a press conference yesterday. He was standing alongside the Swedish Prime Minister. I mean, there were no hints of concessions or compromises. I mean, he said a trade war hurts hurts uh, them more than it hurts us, uh, referring to Canada uh, to America's trading partners. So, I think he's set on this. And um, however skewed and and misguided the the logic, um, I don't think he backs down. Um, does he back down when he starts to see it? Uh, Hitting his 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 base and the people that he's he's trying to get votes from, possibly. I mean, it's all insane. You know, what we if we retaliated, it'd be it'd be insane. But it it'd be equally insane to do nothing. So I I, I think at the least the Canadian government has to drop contingency plans. Um, whether it, it whether it enacts them depends on things I guess like you're just talking about. You know, are there ways around this for Canadian companies that have, that have got ownership by American. Uh, or Canadian plants that have got ownership by American companies. Um, it may be that Canada is not the target here, but but it certainly sounds like it is. I mean, you know, we're we're a major player in this field. It wasn't picked at random. So uh, it's we're it's strange days indeed. And and um, 
you know, any, any students of economic history, it's, it's pretty scary stuff. I mean, the, the major difference between the 1930s and the, and the, the Great Recession we had, uh, you know, 10 years ago, is that after the Great Recession, we did not put up protective walls around all these countries. So uh, it is worrying, for sure, and particularly, I'm sure, in, in, in your region. Well, exactly. And and I know that, you know, we'd be naive to suggest that, well, you know, they've tried this before and it didn't work, so surely he's not going to do it this time. I mean, the last time was 2002 when George W. Bush imposed them. And, and I know that even the Post ran a story, I guess it was earlier this week, that said, uh, and even Bush had to rescind those later on. What well, was 30 months later that he rescinded them? And, and that's, that's a pretty long time to hold your breath and wait for things to get better. I mean, if it's going to happen, it's going to have an impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... There are lessons to be learned from that. You know, eventually he did rescind them. They, uh, I just had a call from somebody who was telling me about uh, uh, in Mexico where where the U.S. put um, or forced Mexican truckers to uh, to take all the stuff off the trucks and put them on American trucks as soon as they crossed the border. And they fought back against that with targeted tariffs. And, again, that was rescinded. So I think that, you know, these these techniques and and more surgical strikes might work if they're done smartly and they're done uh, and they and they hit Trump where it hurts, which is basically in his political base. Well, we'll see how the Canadian government's going to respond. We're told that uh, sometime later on this week we're going to get some details from the White House on this. Uh, it's a great piece. Check it out in the National Post uh, from John Iverson. John, thanks as always. Good talking to you today. Okay, Bill. Thanks a lot. All the best. Talk again soon. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.